Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your increasingly frequent rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster. I do various things at Freethink. And Megan, it's going to be okay. I'm going to hold all of this together. We're going to make it. I'm joined by a remarkable cast of characters. These are these men are legendary. I mean, mm-hmm. heroes in their own right. They have so many great accomplishments. Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, wearing that same ratty bandana, oh, which has almost certainly not been washed in weeks. Weeks, untrue. I'm Untrue. I am married. Yeah, looks, you can't prove it. after can't prove bad it. smelling <laughs> Wow. You said keep her in the kitchen? Is that what you said? No. She'll do the laundry. Bad. Unbelievable. Yeah, we're not on Twitter here, Camille. You have to make things up. <laughs> Can we just ask which ch- Megan? Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't ask any questions. If you know, you know. Yeah. No questions, says. Bobby Riggs. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Also joined by Michael Moynihan of Vice News. He is also in the building. Michael Hi, Moynihan. Wow. Very good, very good to see you. He's in Michael's we building. still Let's keep not. him around. <laughs> you still keep me around. You know, you need the color commentary, right? And by the way, <laughs> we're increasing, uh, you know, increasingly uh, doing these a couple times a week. That's because of the Patreon. So go sign up for the Patreon. We've got a lot of new content over there, too, just for the Patreon That's subscribers. True. So. That's true. You can, you can find us on uh, at We The Fifth on Twitter, www dot we the fifth dot com and yes we are on patreon you can find us you can give us your money and we will provide you with all manner of good things different content i mean new content so much good stuff exclusive content. content exclusive content that's what that's what we have for you we're you can also find ourselves. camille on a uh, clubhouse and uh, <laughs> that's how true do pr- how do you pronounce parlor clubhouse parlor yeah. or parlay i'm How's not the, i'm not on uh, that what's it I'm called gab are you on gab yeah, very it's different g- it's <laughs> gab 2.0 those are very different things and okay. i'm not on gab right. not yet not well, yet. Well, cancel me first is obviously on doghouse so. okay, we should uh, but, um, but let me introduce yeah, our guest that should have a headband on <laughs> I need a vendetta. I need a vendetta. That's true. I got I an extra. We, seriously, I don't want to get a haircut in the middle of a pandemic. This is six month pandemic hair. Didn't like Germany already solve this already though? Yeah, but I'm not in Germany. I'm in Washington, yeah. FN DC. That's, uh, that's I right. why I said effing. This is this is this is this is not That's exactly right. This is a podcast for that's, grown-ups by grown-ups. Yeah. Including Michael Moynihan. Yes. Um Yasha Monk. Is the uh, is the other voice that you're hearing? He's a very very busy gentleman, very much oh, in demand. Yeah, yes, uh, making some waves over the course of the last few days. The founder of Persuasion, an exciting new newsletter, which I will let him talk about. I have, I will just say before you go, Yasha, because I do know you listen to the podcast every week, but not everyone listening listens every single week like clockwork. And if it's not true, just don't say anything. Just just give me a every second. Every week, here. every week. Thank you. Or 17 hours been, every week. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I have been threatening, I've been threatening some mainstream establishment publications saying if you cannot do your damn job of producing a publication that manages to be thoughtful, 
and manages to try and achieve some modicum of balance and respectability, somebody else may show up and start to do this for you. And Yasha, it seems that you and I are very much on the same wavelength because I think you've taken a step in that direction. Could you tell me what on earth you've been doing over the course of the past couple of weeks, days, months? Yeah, so look, I I started with um, Community, with Magazine. We'll see exactly which shape it takes. But uh, the idea is that, uh, you know, I've been talking and warning for a long time about the threat that right-wing populism poses to democracy around the world. We had a great discussion about this when I first came on the podcast. Um, And I continue to think that that's the biggest threat to our freedoms right now. Um, But I'm also very worried about the fact that at the very moment when we need to be able to provide a better alternative to people like Trump, um, to actually tell people that we can have a society that comes together and lives up to our values better um, and, uh, and holds on to some of the great things about the United States. Um, there is a growing trend of illiberalism on part of the left. There are people who think that free speech is a dirty word. There are people who are not very interested in due process. We've seen all of these different cases um, in the last weeks and months of people getting fired for completely ridiculous reasons in a way that is just producing a huge chilling effect on what uh, certainly media elites, uh, but also a lot of Americans feel they can uh, say and express. And that's a very unhealthy uh, moment to be in. And so what I want to do is not just to complain, not just to point fingers, not just to say, nana, nana, you guys are assholes, you guys are idiots. It's to create a community for people who actually want to stand up for the values of a free society together. And so that's what persuasion is. Um, We have uh, free founding principles that are very straightforward. We want to live in a society uh, of individuals in which everybody has a chance to pursue a meaningful, dignified life irrespective of who they are. We believe in the social value of persuasion. So uh, we want to defend free speech and free inquiry and due process. And finally, we are animated by a spirit of persuasion, which is to say that we don't just want to mock a troll we actually want to persuade people. And so um, we're going to have great live events. We're going to have great book clubs. We're going to have great social events so that people in this space can actually come and get to know each other and hang out together and create a real community. And we'll also have a, a publication in which we uh, argue for those values and argue for those. Yeah, I've noticed on the internet, particularly on Twitter, um, in the past 24, 48 hours, <clears throat> people saying, Essentially, that you don't need your publication because the grounds for your publication are false, that there's no such thing. There's no such thing as cancel culture. There's no such thing as a chilling effect. This is all people being rightfully punished for having, you know, really ugly views. Um, you've responded a little bit to that on Twitter. Uh, give me a kind of a, a more robust defense of the of the need of a publication like this and kind of a response to people who make that claim. And I sp- suppose before you jump into it, Yasha, it's, it's probably worth mentioning that there was also a, a now infamous letter published this week in the pages of Harper's. Um, well, at least online, it should be in Harper's. I guess it's going to be published in the October issue. Um, but a letter that actually echoes many of the same sentiments that's endorsed by a number of luminaries, brilliant thought leaders, people like me and <laughs> Salman Rushdie. 
which I mean, obviously same weight class, exactly the same thing. Well, I have to say, so, I didn't, I didn't think that one of the most controversial things uh, I would ever do in life is to appear on a list of luminaries alongside JK Rowling. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, you've been accused of standing with JK Rowling and Salman Rushdie. How do you defend yourself? And that's not something that would have occurred I mean, a few months ago, but that would be my life. Right <laughs> well, how, how do you defend yourself? Yasha? And what do you make of this? Well, so, so, uh, you know, I'm going to bore you with all of the examples and stories. Um, but, but I think they're important. To talk to. Um, so I, I did a reported piece for the Atlantic um, called stop firing the innocent um, in which I looked into and reported into some of these stories of people getting fired in the dubious circle. So let me tell you a couple of those stories. Let me say something about that. Um, to me, the most striking story is that of Emmanuel Cafferty. Um, Cafferty, as it happens, is Latino. His dad is half Irish, half Mexican. His mom is Mexican. Um, uh, Cafferty, uh, you know, is a guy with a high school degree, no real interest in politics, lived paycheck to paycheck most of his life, was really, really proud in his sort of mid-40s to get this great job at the San Diego Gas and Electric Company. Um, you know, locating underground electricity lines, um, power, power utility lines. Um, and, you know, really felt like he was having a kind of middle-class life for the first time in his life, very proud of his job. So one day he's driving home in his truck, uh, you know, which is branded SDG and E. Um, and, you know, his hand is dangling out of a window. Um, and I guess he's like cracking his knuckles. He's playing with his hand. Some white guy who's a political activist sees this and thinks he's doing the okay gesture. Now, why would it be bad if he's doing the okay gesture? Because some trolls in 4chan five years ago decided it would be funny to pretend that the okay gesture is actually a secret white supremacist code because if you squint really hard, it spells out WP for white power. But some people have now taken this as gospel and have concluded that anybody who does the okay gesture is a Nazi. So this guy takes a picture of this, puts it on Twitter and tags as the G&E uh, two hours later, uh, Cafferty is suspended from his job. By that evening, his truck is taken away from him, and by the following Monday, he's actually fired. Now, in the intervening days, he's trying to explain himself to a panel of investigators who, I hate to keep mentioning this, happen to be all white. Um, and he told me, you know, I, 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 I told them, I have no interest in politics, never voted in a presidential election in my life. You know, I'm not white. Look at the color of my skin. Look at the color of my skin. I'm not even white. How am I supposed to be a white supremacist? Um, gets fired anyway. Um, so that's, I think, one example of a company that's, you know, trying to make a show of anti-racism, trying to make a show of responding to somebody. So sorry. Uh, normally my phone is silent. Let me, uh, trying to make a show of anti-racism trying to make a show of responding to somebody um, uh, uh, in this kind of way uh, and actually just, you know, sacrificing a completely innocent guy who happens to be a non-white guy um, uh, in order to look to the public. Now, that's one example. Right? And to be clear, for those who have not seen the photograph, he wasn't aware the photograph was being taken. His hand was dangling out the side of his window. He was staring forward. It was taken from the side. He's staring, looking forward because he's driving or, you know, in his car. Um, so it's not like he's posing like, hey, look at me, wink, wink, with my OK sign. His hand's just out the window. Go on. Right. Well, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I did do research and so on. This just, you know, the company... 
wouldn't talk to me. But so far as I can tell, the company has never presented him with any evidence, right? So I get that somebody accuses this guy of being a white supremacist, you know, as a company start looking into him. And if it turns out that, you know, he's posting on all of these white supremacist boards or whatever, and there's some plausible idea that he knew what the OK symbol is, and and he was, in fact, sort of wink-wink trying to express his allegiance to white power in his company trunk. But of course, uh, they would have reason to fire him. There's just no reason to believe that whatsoever. The way he put it to me, which I thought was 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 haunting, was that, look, you know, if I'd lost this job that I really loved because I made a mistake, I could live with that. A man can learn from his mistakes. But this is like being struck by lightning. How do you learn from being struck by lightning? which I thought was just really powerful. Well, the other thing is that it's forever, too. I mean, that's the thing that people don't consider when they're running somebody out of their company or their their university or, or their sports team is that that stain is the first result on Twitter for a very long time. Right. And it's I've been in situations where people have had these kind of, you know, we don't know what actually happened. And they come up as potential employees or potential people on a project and everybody poo-poos it immediately. And you understand why. I mean, why would you take somebody on that has this baggage when there's somebody, you know, equally as competent that's next in line? And that's the, the, one of the really horrifying things is that there's got to be some sort of island that all these people can go to and actually have businesses that service each other because there's so many people that I don't know what they're going to do. And I know a number of people who are now effectively unemployed because of this, because I've reached out to certain people to ask them about these things. Well, and it's an implicit blacklist, right? He's never going to be told, this is why you don't give a job. But, but you know, of course, his next employer is going to say, well, you know, I mean, obviously he didn't really do anything, but do we really want to associate ourselves with somebody who's just gotten fired for being a white supremacist? Yes. Right? I mean, tend not to want to do that. No, no, no. Look, um, I think the story of Manuel Cafferty is really striking because he's a complete normie, right? Like he's not mm. an online discourse. He's not in a progressive organization. He's not a journalist at the New York Times or at Vox. Um, you know, he's just a random dude. And so I think that shows the power of some of this. You know, it can hit anybody. Um, but of course, it's way, way more likely to hit you if you are, uh, you know, a member of a progressive organization of some sort right now. So that's where the story of David Shaw comes in. Um, you know, David Shaw is a progressive data analyst at a, a firm called Civis Analytics, which uh, prouds itself in giving you the straight data. I forget the exact slogan, but it prides itself in how fact-based it is. Um, well, uh, you know, in the crazy 24 hours in which the um, consensus among sort of certain progressive uh, uh, pundits was that riots are good, in fact. There was like a 24-hour window when everybody was like, don't criticize the riots because apparently people are rioting in response to George Floyd. Certain people, um, often, you know, white, uh, white people, um, you know, and so if you criticize these, you're somehow undermining Black Lives Matter. So, so for like a 24-hour window, it was not permissible to criticize, uh, uh, you know, looting and, and, and other pieces of violence that happened um, on the fringes of those protests. I mean, 24 hours later, the party line shifted and suddenly it was okay to say that uh, looting is bad, but you had to blame it on white supremacists, which was a little odd. But, but that sort of, you know, you could really trace that shift on Twitter um, in about a 24-hour window. But during that 24-hour window, David Shaw tweeted a paper that had just been released, a paper that Omar Wasso, a friend of mine from grad school, uh, African-American political scientist at, at Princeton professor there, um, has been working on for 12 years or 10 years, and it happened to be released just around the time in the American Political Science Review, the most prestigious political science journal in the world. Um, 
that argues that, um, you know, very careful analysis of uh, the 1960s show that nonviolent protests were much more effective and violent. And so David Shaw um, tweets a, a factual summary of that research paper by Omar Wasso, uh, Black Princeton professor. Um, and there's a lot of pushback because it seemed to break that temporary taboo that actually was out of window three days later, but that bad moment was a taboo that, that you shouldn't in any way imply that there's something wrong with, uh, uh, you know, the elements of some of those protests that were violent. Um, and so, um, you know, there's backlash on social media. Somebody, some activist tweets uh, at the company, say, come back, come, come get your boy. So basically an implication that he should be fired. Um, and within a few days, he's out of his job. Now, uh, if you're a data firm and your job is to help Democrats win elections, but you fire somebody <laughs> for tweeting factual information about, you know, an interesting historical case of what may have uh helped Nixon win the 1968 election, you're not serious about your job. And what's really interesting about this is that these companies tend to overreact in that moment. They go into this panic mode. And like, oh, just fire him. And that way, sort of the, 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 the Twitter thing will die down. By the way, Civics Analytics, all of the board is white. They took off all of their employees and the board from the website within the last couple of months because it looked oh, too embarrassing. Really? Nice oh, little really? TikTok factoid. Um, so they're trying to make sure that people don't come out to the CEO by, you know, sacrificing this person who was there for seven years since the founding of the company. Um, so, so I talked to them. Um, and the first statement they gave, they give me on the record is that he was not fired over the tweet, which obviously implies that he must have done something else terrible. So they're essentially sliming him. Uh, so I say, look, I find it hard to believe, given the totality of circumstances. I'm, I'm open-minded. Give me some evidence that this guy was, in fact, uh, fired for something else. You've got to help me here. But give me something, right? Um, and instead, they realize that they screwed up, that they potentially, I'm not sure that's exactly the case, I'm not a lawyer, but that potentially you could try to sue them for defamation. And they beg me to take that sentence out of their statement. Oh, so they at first say he's not been fired over tweets, and then they beg me to take the sentence that he was fired over tweets out of a statement, which I think is pretty telling. I also have reporting, by the way, from parent and police of a company um, uh, that internally in the company, in all staff meeting, uh, the firing was very much portrayed as being because. Of so and he's still out of a job, by the way. He's still out of a job, so far as I know. I don't know whether you know he's quietly been hired. For but out of that particular else. job. Oh, absolutely. He's not going yeah. to that job. Yeah, that's yeah. And it's like Emmanuel Cafferty. The, uh, the storm, you, you mentioned sort of like, you know, there's the, the 24 hours that comes. And we, we've seen this with a lot of, of more, uh, uh, you know, media-centric jobs, right? The editors of newspapers and magazines and such, uh, a series of a flurry of which lost their jobs uh, in June, um, that it happens within three days, you know, um, mm. like there's there's a, a precipitating event or sometimes a non-event. It should it, sometimes it's like, hey, uh, Black Lives Matter. Well, you don't think that they matter enough. Um, and then there's a staff revolt and then there's the panic. Right. Um, and uh, this kind of leads me to a question. And I know that we're talking about persuasion, but we're going to get in and out of it. www.persuasion.community, by the way, just to get the Ni- to community. Nicely, okay. nicely community. done. Yeah. 
it strikes me that in the um, in the discussions, most of it really, really terrible surrounding the Harper's letter that you and Camille both signed. Um, and I can't wait for Camille to get back on the phone. He goes in and out of his uh, Shenandoah <laughs> coal ranch there, depending on his dial-up modem. Um, uh, thank, thank you, Matt. Uh, thank you. Yeah, Matt. yeah. Um, we'll, we'll we'll talk about your participation uh, in, in this later, Camille, because it's I have I've got questions. Um, uh, well, given but, my high profile, I mean, I've I've had to take extreme measures to keep myself safe while fighting <laughs> against cancel culture. Yes. I can't be out in the public milling about because I've put myself at risk here. But mm-hmm. to be clear, dear listeners, what he's talking about is that he can't show his face to us on this Zoom call. He's actually <laughs> underneath like the bar in his West Virginia like shotgun shack. Um, but uh, Yasha, yeah. it strikes it strikes me that that there are all these conversations that are 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 zooming past each other. About uh, on one hand, uh, I think the underlying uh, complaint in the uh, Harper's letter, which I agree with, is about kind of the culture of free speech. We've created this culture, particularly at elite kind of liberal uh, institutions, but also that it's spreading everywhere right now, like wildfire um, is the is the contention. And that culture is restricting free speech or, or making people feel afraid to say things for risk of being fired. Normies are getting fired for no good reason at all because there are mobs coming in. Um, so there's, that's a culture free speech argument. Um, in response, there is a freedom of association pushback saying, hey, look, this is just a corrective. This is people exercising their freedoms to um, not associate with you terrible people and your terrible opinions. But I think there's like a third element there that kind of is in between, which is a due process argument. And I feel like um, it's rare that people make uh, address all three in the same mm. context. But um, but like it is the thing that underlies that it's 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 the, the kind of like it's it's appropriate that you make this your setup that normies are getting fired for crazy stuff with no due process, because that really is the problem. And uh, the pushback against the letter signers is like, oh, you rich people whining about people complaining about your work on Twitter. You know, you go to hell um, when, in fact, I believe that uh, part of your animating concern was th- was the other thing. So um, if you can sort of like uh, square that circle, how much of this is really kind of like um, you're addressing the problems of due process and panicky corporate responses to the mob as opposed to how much are you truly worried about the arena for free speech or how those things kind of overlap? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great way of breaking it out. So I think it's both, right? So it's, it's definitely this, this concern about due process. Um, you know, the point of due process is that precisely in those three days of media panic, um, that, that happens when, you know, there's a Twitter storm about something supposedly bad involving your company. Uh, the tempting thing is just to throw somebody overboard. But if you put in due process requirements, um, the company has to at least make sure that this person was in fact guilty of something. The striking thing about Emmanuel Cafferty is partially that he's a normie who's not in this world, but it's also partially that it's like on no conceivable world did he do anything wrong. I mean, we start firing people having their hands dangling out of trucks and inadvertently making gestures that 5% of Americans uh, believe uh, to be associated with a terrible ideology, even though 90% of Americans probably just think it's saying, okay, it, it, that's just nuts. And, you know, I, I'm somebody who comes from the left and I still consider myself to be on the left. I thought that standing up for the innocent who are arbitrarily punished 
uh, is a good old-fashioned left-wing value. And I'm flabbergasted by how little people on the left seem to care about that. The due process is important, and that's one of the reasons why one of the very first articles we had on persuasion, www.persuasion.community, um, was the last argue, time you get to do that. Uh, you, you, you can always edit me out. You can censor me. Um, <laughs> is, uh, uh, is to argue against at will employment, right? I think if you had employment contracts where you can only be fired for cause, um, then companies would have a duty to actually investigate and to present you with evidence. But the thing they are supposedly firing for is in fact rooted in fact, and that would help. Um, make it harder for companies to act in this moment of panic, uh, protect the jobs of a lot of people, and um, uh, preclude this chilling effect that people are then scared of speaking their mind. Now, the, the thing that's, that's scary about this, though, to that point, is that a number of the the charges, in when they're honestly adjudicated don't often appear to me to be fireable offenses in the first place. So what is actually considered a fireable offense is kind of move, is a moving target. If you say something and somebody says, well, that made me feel unsafe, for instance, I've seen people react in ways in which people are, shall we say, marginalized or run out of an organization or not given bylines anymore in, in the media universe. And, you know, if you are, you, it's, it's this thing that you can't actually adjudicate. It's well, so, not as if somebody did something, well, there's the photo, he's doing it, and we know he's doing it in a sort of white supremacist way. These are sort of a, you know, a comment, a tweet, somebody did something, they, they just have the wrong politics in some way. So it's, it's even due process is difficult sometimes. So, so it's not enough, right? That's, that's right. I mean, part of the piece, by the way, also suggests that people shouldn't be allowed to be fired for their political views other yes. than in sort of certain specialized jobs. I mean, if you want to you know, be part of the, um, you know, whatever, the Democratic campaign group. And you say, I voted for Donald Trump, and it makes sense that he shouldn't be able to work for a Democratic campaign group. Um, but that's sort of a, a special case. Um, now, uh, but look, I, I think it's not just about this. It is also about chilling effect on speech and what kind of criticism is perfectly normal and what kind of criticism is not perfectly normal. So let's talk about uh, this letter that luminaries such as Camille and I signed. Um <laughs> as well as some lesser-known <laughs> people like uh, Salman Rushdie. Um, uh, uh, and, um, you know, the striking thing was that the, the response to the letter proved its point better than anything the letter said. And in some ways, anything that happened before mm-hmm. the letter. And that's not because people criticize. The fact that people are on Twitter mocking us, saying, oh, this is stupid, this is not necessary, these people are all, you know, well-established, you know, they haven't gotten cancelled, even for someone who actually kind of got, uh, 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 they, they attempted to cancel him pretty hard, if I remember the early 1990s uh, from history of the contents, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's fine, right? Like, I don't have, I don't object to that. I mean, I sometimes roll my eyes when people literally said, none of the people in this letter have ever been cancelled or banned. It's like, actually, somebody has been in Iranian prison Gary Kasparov has been run out of Russia and Salman Rushdie had a damn fatwa on his head. Um, so perhaps look at the list of signatories before you make that point. But that's fine. That's disagreement, right? I think it's a stupid tweet. I'm going to point out that it's a stupid tweet. That's uh, a healthy public sphere, right? I mean, sometimes slightly childish public sphere, but, but that's fine. What's different is when somebody like Matt Iglesias, um, you know, one of the prominent writers and co-founders at Vox, um, tweets, uh, signs this letter, and one of his co-workers sends a letter to their bosses saying the fact that 
Matt Iglesias, alongside known fought criminals like Jakey Rowling, has signed this letter, creates a hostile work environment. Now, this particular writer claimed uh, that they didn't want uh, Iglesias to get fired over this. Um, but a hostile work environment is a legal term. And as an employer, you need to ensure that you don't have a hostile work environment for people. She used the word safe, too. I mean, let's, let's, uh, I mean, it was, I don't feel safe. Yeah. And one more important point is that she didn't send it, uh, just to the leadership at Vox. She sent it to Twitter. (laughs) But I don't want him so, fired. No, I don't want him fired. But, no, 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 definitely not. Never, okay. never. Perish the point. <laughs> so, you know, that is not, you know, if she'd, if they'd gotten on, on Twitter um, and said, uh, you know what, I, I strongly disagree with this letter. I think it's ridiculous, but my colleague signed it. That's fine. I mean, corporate, you know, organizations have to figure out how publicly they want their employees to criticize each other. I'm all for allowing them to criticize each other quite publicly. I think that's, that's, that's fine. But to say the fact that my colleague has signed a letter that was also signed by other people who I have arbitrarily defined as beyond the pale means that my colleague now is making me unsafe. That's not dissent. That's not saying, hey, let's have this debate. Here's why I think you're wrong. That is trying to shut down speech. It is trying to threaten people with professional consequences trying to unperson people. And when we tolerate that, when we uh, let that run rampant in our intellectual system, it has an incredible chilling effect. We're sure Salman Rushdie can sign this letter. Um, sure, some people are going to be able to speak their mind because, you know, they're famous enough and they've made enough money in their life we don't have to care. But 98% of the people who create the content we consume are never going to say what they actually think. They're always going to say what they're guessing they're supposed to be saying or thinking at any one point. And that's going to be a tremendous mm. loss to the public sphere. And by the way, it's going to be a tremendous loss to those of us um, who are constrained by this um, on the left or in the center, um, being able to make sensible fact-based arguments to overcome uh, racial inequality, to overcome sexism, to overcome transphobia, or to win elections against somebody like Donald Trump. So it is a terrible for intellectual life, which I care about. It is terrible for the sanity of people that I care about. It's terrible for readers and listeners of mainstream media because they're no longer going to get honest opinions. But it's also terrible for all those of us who don't want people like Donald Trump to win elections. One other thing to, to add to this, just quick, a, a yeah. quick thing, is that, you know, it's important to note that the, the letter writer uh, was a trans woman and mentioned that a number of times in their objection to Matt Iglesias signing, signing this, this letter. Um, and it's also important to mention that, that in the letter, there is no mention of trans issues, but they're brought up. And it's no, kind of did, like a, she did assert that there were dog whistles multiple yes, times. She well, said there precisely. were numerous dog whistles in this letter, which is absolutely absurd. There are I mean, zero I'm, dog whistles. I, I, I'm not a dog, but I didn't catch them. <laughs> okay. And I, I read it a few times. But that's just the kind of instinct now is that let's t- to bring this into the conversation, these kind of dirty conversations. And I say that because there's just there's no clean way of having them, particularly the trans uh, debate, something I never weighed into because why bother? I mean, I don't even know what my opinions on it are, but I'm afraid of having the wrong ones if I did look into it. So, I mean, the fact that this is the thing that that, that people are talking about in the Internet, this mm-hmm. is the kind of the, the, the weapons that people attack with is that 
you know, this wasn't about trans issues, but right. it was made about that for reasons that... that right, because along, oh, along the 150 signatories of this letter, those two or three people who had taken positions on this issue, as, as, along, by the way, with some trans signatories, um, yes. those two or three people who had taken uh, positions on this issue that are regarded as beyond the pale. And I'm like you, I think it's a complicated issue. I'm not exactly sure what I, what I think about it. I certainly think that a lot of trans people are terribly discriminated against, um, you know, in big parts of the country. I, I, I don't imagine it would be um, particularly fun to be a trans teenager in, uh, you know, rural parts of the South and very religious parts of this country. I'm sure it's, it's really tough and I'm sure it's tough in big mm-hmm. cities and so on as well. I have every sympathy for that. Um, but to say that um, not just, you know, because we disagree with J.K. Rowling about her views of this, uh, she should be cancelled, but because Matt Iglesias signed a letter that was also signed by J.K. Rowling, now he's making me unsafe. I mean, you know, that's more paranoid than ours about contracting coronavirus in the middle of March. <laughs> Yasha, I suspect that you're not, you don't line up with, uh, I suspect that you don't line up with Noam Chomsky on a lot of foreign policy issues. No, I mean, I mean, Do you want to walk okay, away from this letter no, Michael, because Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky rent at this point? I'm sorry, but I'm going to do a Noam Chomsky rent. Noam Chomsky has sheared on every damn genocidal regime in the last 30 or 40 years. I mean, he managed to cheer on <laughs> oh, not just Pol Pot, and he managed to cheer on both the Iranian theocratic regime and the Iraqi secular regime within quick succession while they were at war with each other because the one thing they had in common was to hate the United States of America. Uh, Noam Chomsky, wonderful linguist, though he appears to be, has consistently been wrong about politics for 35 or 40 years. But as Malcolm Gladwell pointed out, I wasn't scared by the fact that some people who signed the letters have horrendous views that have been complicit as it happens in the <laughs> killing of many people. Because part of the point of the letter was for a lot of people from across the ideological spectrum who have deep disagreements to stand for the importance of free speech. Part of the point of the letter that there's yeah. all kinds of people among the signatories about whom I, I disagree on all kinds of things. But may I just say that if we're going to have fear of contagion from somebody, it should be for the cheerleader of Pol Pot. And maybe he mm. makes some Cambodian I, signatories feel unsafe. I'm not sure. Camille, I, I saw you uh, <laughs> on uh, on uh, uh, Twitter agreeing with Malcolm Gladwell's uh, point that Yasha just mentioned. Uh, well, and- well, yeah, I'd made I'd made the same point like the day before because all all of us were were seeing the same inane, ridiculous posts on Twitter, most of which were either explicit guilt by association condemnations or totally ridiculous. Um, nonsense about well, all of these people are rich. All of these people just don't want people to 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 be able to condemn them on Twitter. the The statement is actually very thoughtfully and diplomatically written, and it is very obviously not about specifically the the people who are signatories to it feeling concerned about their own ability to speak out publicly. Many of these people, especially perhaps J.K. Rowling's, have fuck you money, like legit fuck you money. They don't need any help. Like you can't actually hurt her. Um, On the other hand, there are plenty of people as has already been ably demonstrated by Yasha here um, who do actually need some help. 
And I, I think that the goal of signing something like this, as Yasha just mentioned, is is precisely to take advantage of the the diversity, the array of perspectives and affiliations and points of view and philosophies that are on offer in that long list of signatories. Like the whole purpose of the open letter is to derive some power from that diversity and to say all of us, even if we disagree with one another forcefully on a number of issues, um, we feel very strongly that this particular statement about these liberal values um, are, are, is important enough for us to come together and make a public statement to try and, and protect these values because something fundamental is changing in our society. And uh, I mean, I, I just don't know how you can miss that. Um, except unless you didn't read the letter at all. And unless the substance of the argument simply doesn't matter to you. Uh, Camille, you, uh, that's all well uh, said to the extent of which that we could hear it through your <laughs> dial up modem, but uh <laughs> You're a cranky individualist. You're not a boring procedural lefty like some people I know. Uh, what's That's the true. He- what the hell were you doing on this? Uh, the, are, are you are you becoming uh, you know domesticated? <laughs> <laughs> it's a country. Uh, no, but, but this is <laughs> no. I think, but that's the point, isn't it? Like I. I spend plenty of time advocating for these values, as do as does everyone on the podcast. Now um, we do it independently, we do it individually, we do it in different contexts. I'll like host an event. I will be the principal speaker at an event. To to do it in the context of a document like this, to stand shoulder to shoulder with all sorts of characters who you might not ordinarily stand shoulder to shoulder with, it it seemed like an appropriate thing that the appropriate thing to do the circumstances seem sufficiently urgent that it's worthwhile for there to be demonstrations of that concern um and that's that's the reason why i signed it and of course i mean it's a bit of a it's a bit of a compromise a, a document like this isn't ever going to be crafted in precisely the way every person wants it to be there are certain things that i might have emphasized a little bit more in fact I will say that there's, it's probably the case that I thought for a moment about not signing because it didn't seem strident enough. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. It, it, seemed like the, it seemed like the right thing to do, and I didn't really care who else was signing the document. Um, I know Thomas uh, Chatterton-Williams, who's a friend of all of ours um, and a previous guest on the podcast, and once he came to me and asked, um, I, I, I knew I wanted to be a part of it. I just want to make clear to to the the correspondent who actually wrote to, to the fifth column and asked why Camille Foster had signed this letter and Matt Welch, the the lily livered Matt Welch and the jello spined Michael Moynihan did not. I just want to make it clear I wasn't Cowards. asked. So so that's that's just a thing. I'm I'm not. I mean I know a lot, I, almost everyone on the on not almost everyone but a lot of people in the letter. But um, I, I I wasn't asked. But I think that's an important point because um, I talked to somebody who did sign it and we talked about the, the actual contents of the letter and some you know areas of disagreement that we had with it. But it's it's just the idea, the general idea behind it, and to to sort of quibble about certain things. Like you know, look, there was a, a sentence in there that kind of. I arched an eyebrow at, you know, because I, I do understand that there's a lot of throat clearing in there that says, hey, hey, mm-hmm. we're not right wingers. 
We're not bad guys. We're actually liberals. That's we're right. on your side because I know who they're talking to. Right. And it's not talking to, to the, the average American. And if that were the case, I don't think they'd need so much of that throat clearing. And, you know, this, 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 there was a sentence in there that, you know, these threats, you know, we typically come from the radical right. I'm not even sure that that's true. Um, I, I don't pay attention to the radical right like Yasha does. I do in Europe also like Yasha does. Um, but in the U.S., I don't I don't I see this as um, coming from one area of the political spectrum. And I am not a conservative. And I make that clear a lot on this podcast. And I think it should be clear to anyone who listens anyway. But that's my throat clearing is. Uh, but but that said, I mean, we just have to look this in the eye and say, you know, it's really coming from a very particular area on the left. I mean, the words right were mentioned twice. You know, there was, you know, radical right and something else. Um, right wing demagogues, I think it's a, uh, it didn't explicitly say anything about the left. May, may and I, say, I think that was on purpose. Well, let, let, me, let, let me say I, I have two little observations. So the first is that the fact that the letter was anodyne was one of its trends, I think. It wasn't the most powerful right. statement. It wasn't the most sure. trident statement. It wasn't the best articulation um, of why we should be concerned right now. Yeah. But it went out of its way to be anodyne and to say we care, as all signatories do, wanting to speak for all of them at once. Um, we care about <laughs> uh, racial justice. We care about remedying the real injustices and inequalities in the United States. We also think that the best way of solving those is to actually have free speech uh, and be able to look at the world honestly in order to figure out actual solution. And that is so anodyne. I mean, I, I think it's broadly right, but it's so anodyne. But if people say, how dare you say that? How dare you publish that? That actually That's tells right. you a yeah. lot about the values of a people. Uh, oh, sure. And just to be clear. And the more uh, just, anodyne the latter, yeah. the more the response to it has told us about who they truly are and, and, and how illiberal that reaction is. Now, the second point I want to make is I've been chewing on this idea that, you know, the people just don't want to be criticized. And it just occurred to me that there's a very stupid comeback to that that I think is actually definitive, which is if all of the people who signed this letter are just thin-skinned and upset about being criticized on Twitter, why on earth sign a letter that we all knew was going to be the subject of tremendous blowback and generate days of controversy. That doesn't even make sense at the simplest level. But I know, I know yeah, and, you know, and to you be know, clear, yeah. Yasha, I agree. And I you know, started by saying that, yeah, no, I agree. I agree that the anodyne letter and the sort of broad letter is the way to go. The one thing about the racial justice thing is that, is that, you know, cause that's something that I would hope that everybody in the universes that we inhabit actually agree on. And we don't actually have to say that very much. We agree on that, that this is something that we strive for. And it just, there's a, there's a ring to it. And it might be just me. It might be just me that's reading it this way that says, Oh, you know, the free speech, we're into the free speech thing, but we actually also believe in racial mm -hmm. justice. We're not, you know, the Milo Yiannopoulos's. We're not these people on campuses. We're not Ann Coulter and the rest of it, which I just don't think you really need to say because there has been an argument that we've ceded the idea and the mantle of free speech to these people who are fundamentally illiberal and don't care about things like racial justice and don't care about these, right. these, these well, other well, issues. Let, let me say something um, about this so appropriation. I, just, I, mean, I think it's a small this is just a trap we keep point. falling into. So it starts to be okay symbol, right? 
So these idiots in Fortune, like, ha, 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 this is a white power symbol. It's suddenly we're supposed to surrender the symbol to them. I don't care about the OK symbol, but it's just a, a nuts way of conducting public space. But like any 20 trolls can just make it impossible for us to use a symbol or, or use a word because mm-hmm. they're going to make it, you know, unclean. I mean, that's just a, you know, why give those 20 trolls in Fortune that much power, right? So that's sort of one thing. Oh, now, the, 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 the crazier thing, is the free speech thing. I mean, free speech has been, you know, always an issue that people who don't feel like they're in power cling to um, because it allows them, it protects them from power, it protects them from the establishment. And I think it tells us a lot about the fact, uh, uh, it tells a lot about contemporary America that it is now uh, the left who dislikes free speech. I think it shows that they feel like they are in fact in power. They feel like they are in fact the establishment. And that is basically true if you have sort of, if you're a highly educated person who went to a good university and then went to one of the mainstream publications or think tanks or whatever and sort of makes your life within that, the left does have complete cultural hegemony. And so, um, you know, the reason why the left doesn't like free speech is that it's something that can challenge hegemony. But that's still a crazy, you're forgetting that that's true of your little milieu and your little bubble, but Donald Trump is actually the damn president of the United States. And we actually got rid of free speech uh, what would that do on a campus like the University of Missouri, um, where the governor might be, uh, you know, a pretty hardline Republican and actually start saying, you know, if you criticize us too much, then we don't like you either. So the idea that this is good for the left and the strategic is stupid, but, 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 um, but it is striking how easily the left has allowed the right to appropriate for itself a value that has historically been at least as associated with the left uh, as with the right. Now, here's the third point I want to make, which is that we haven't talked much about anti-racism. And I think that a lot of us are making a strategic and rhetorical mistake on that. Um, you know, anti-racism, the idea of anti-racism is increasingly associated with and owned by people like Robin DiAngelo, um, you know, by the discourse of white fragility um, and some of the, you know, quite pernicious ideas uh, that are in that world. And so a lot of people are starting to avoid that talk. They are not an anti-racist because, uh, you know, that's DiAngelo and I don't like DiAngelo. But I think it's probably reasonable to dislike this DiAngelo. I find that stuff horrible. Um, but I think it's a big rhetorical mistake because you're never going to be able to explain that to people. I'm not, you know, you, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm not an anti-racist because it's just never going to sound good. I'm not so, sure. So I'm me, not sure anyone's out there saying I'm not an anti-racist besides Camille, but like, I don't, I don't think that's a, I mean, I've um, said that. uh, yeah. that's a, <laughs> well, that's well, a mainstream <laughs> thing. It's just like, it's no, like but within, uh, within progressive elites, well, within, People who are writers and, and so on, who, you know, there's this, this, this verbal problem where you don't want to use the term mm. because the term seems to signal Robin D'Angelo or, you know, Ibram Kendi or whatever, right? And I think that we need to fight for that term. I hate and loathe racism and I want to own the term of anti-racism for my part. I think my part is much better, much more likely to help us root out racism in this country and to help us overcome racial injustices than anything that Robin DiAngelo has ever said. And so that's why I I'm, think we should claim the term rather than leaving to it. But you, 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 you're unsure about my premise. Uh, yeah, and, and, and also uh, uh, on a tactical level, this is uh, an odd case where I'm preempting Camille to make the same point uh, on this particular topic. But like the term of art anti-racist to me immediately suggests the... Uh, the herding me- mechanism, the H-E-R-D uh, herding uh, mechanism that like you're either racist or anti-racist. 
those are the two choices, right? That is the way that it's. I, I don't. I don't wake up and saying I am not anti-racist. Um, I wake up um, being against racism as I have as long as I've been aware that there is a thing called racism, which has been since like 1974 or something, right? Like, so um, the term of art is, yes, it's very much associated right now with the, are you with us? Are you, are you with the terrorists type of framing? I reject that framing because it's an attempt to say, if you don't do it in the way that I like, um, I'm going to uh, make you uh, on the on the wrong team, and I just like okay, well go fuck yourselves. That's that's your problem. It is absolutely not my problem. I have been opposed <laughs> to racism my whole life. I am uh, also opposed to jargon being kind of inflicted on me or me ha having to like like grapple with that jargon right now and saying oh I adopt the jargon because if I don't then the you know the elite guardians of discourse might think that I'm on the wrong team if that's what they think if that's their analysis after reviewing my 33 years of writing then fuck them too like I I actually don't want to throat clear for those sons of bitches I don't I don't want to wake up in the morning and say hey you know what People of the world, um, I look. I'm I'm not racist. I don't actually want to make that as a kind of claim. Like I've written in the public sphere. You can Google me. Check it out. Right. Like I I want to get on with my work and not worry about other people's jargon and other people's attempts to herd me in one place or another. But Camille, go tell me how I'm right. <laughs> you you know what I'm I'm open to Yasha's perspective on this. I'm open to the notion that anti-racism is something that is just going to sound popular and it will be very difficult to articulate the various reasons why people need to be suspicious of the the doctrine that's being articulated by people like Ibram Kendi. Um all the same, the thing that's most important to me is actually critiquing the perspective of people like Ibram Kendi and helping people understand the degree to which anti-racism as developed and articulated by these people is specifically is something that specifically requires the notion of race and something that explicitly traffics in notions of essentialism. Um, it, it's about the inherent guilt of an entire constellation of people who are generally described as white by this doctrine and the perpetual victimhood and otherness, essentially, of people of color, but particularly black people uh, in, the, in, the, in a, the United States' context. And it's about a, a, a rather artificial um, and flattened history that simply is not compatible with any sort of realistic rendering of just what's happened historically in this country and the tremendous progress that's happened from a social standpoint. Um, and I, I just think it's important to confront that. They call their philosophy anti-racism. Um, I worry a little bit about trying to appropriate their term while deconstructing their ideas. But perhaps the most important thing is to just push back against these specific bad manifestations of elements of their ideas. Um, but I'm, I suppose I'm open to it. So, so, to, just, me, so, so to me, that is a lot of a point, right? That, 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 that it's easier to say, you know, if it's sort of like, if somebody 
presents you with Robin D'Angelo and says, you know, I'm an anti-racist because I love Robin D'Angelo. I mean, you say, well, I don't really like the term anti-racism because, you know, it just distracts you. I think the, the, yeah. the, the cleaner, more direct way is to say, look, I'm an anti-racist too. Now, you know what? I think part of what makes me an anti-racist is that I think that while people have been deeply discriminated against on the basis uh, of this construct of race, um, actually, in truth, race doesn't divide us that much. It shouldn't divide us that much. We have much more in common across these lines of color and also of religion and so on uh, than divides us. Um, I don't have the experiences of uh, a woman in the United States. I don't have the experiences of a black man in the United States. But when I speak to people about their experiences, I can come to understand them. And when we're being treated unfairly, I can come to care about the injustice in the terms of my own political compass. I want to remedy those injustices because they go against my image of a kind of society that I want to live in. Now, what do people like Robin DiAngelo say? They say, you know, all white people share racial essence. They say, I can never truly understand uh, somebody who's brown or black. They say, I shouldn't, I cannot have political solidarity with them uh, because I care about uh, their fate from within our own values. I should just defer to whatever they want because it's not my space to think or speak. And that is not the vision of a society I want. That is not the way in which we're actually going to be able to have uh, true commonality, to have cultural mixity, to have a common society, um, uh, a shared project. Um, and so that's why my anti-racism is radically different from that of Robert D'Angelo. To me, that, that's, that's, I mean, we're sort of, it's a matter point we've been discussing, but to me, that's a cleaner, clearer way of expressing my disagreement. I, I think it's a, a, actually an incredibly important point and one that's often overlooked when people who read Robin D'Angelo's book, as I tried to do, I mean, give me a medal for trying. I mean, I couldn't get very far. I skipped around a little bit trying to, hoping it would pick up steam and I would figure out who the murderer was at the end or something. There was, it was utterly tedious and boring. But the thing that comes through is obviously, I, I, I think it's funny that she's, she says, well, you know, as a white person, you know, you, you can't actually speak to these things. So I don't know how she's telling me as well, a white can, person. She can only that speak she to white people speak about to these things. things. But the interesting thing about, about this that. is you can't instruct black people sure but she's she, so she, she, she says that she, book camille congratulations yeah, but she says she's telegraphing what black people want <laughs> well <laughs> but the thing that i find in, in, incredibly pernicious about it is this idea that one this is all this is sort of permeating the culture right now you can't play a trans person in a film if you're not trans Halle berry just backed out of a film what yesterday because she was supposed to she was playing a trans man and she had an, a conversation with somebody and apologize for it. This is acting. This is the whole point of acting, right? And you can't, I mean, I'm quite happy. I, I'm happy to watch Hamilton where all the characters, which are, I think this is being canceled now for not drawing enough attention to slavery, are played by black actors. I, no one complains about that. And no one should complain about it. But in this, this idea that you cannot speak about these things or to these things because you have not experienced what I have experienced is wrong at about a thousand different levels. But that sort of racial essentialism suggests that people who grow up, you know, the son of, you know, Robert Johnson, the billionaire uh, founder and CEO of BET, has the same experience as somebody who is black and lives in East New York, and they're going to speak about an issue in essentially the same way. But if we apply that backwards, if we go back to history, 
I mean, I have written a lot about anti-Semitism and about, you know, I, I did Judaic studies uh, when I was when I was in college and it was I essentially ended up with a minor in it. And I wrote for Tablet. I am, you know, the, the joking title of my column was The Righteous Gentile because I was the, the non-Jewish person writing about this stuff. I, I thought my columns were pretty good. I thought they, I got a lot of good feedback. I'm not Jewish. If I'm going to write about Germans, for instance, you know, sorry, Yasha. I mean, you are a German, right? It's I'm some, a German, some, also a Jew. I'm deeply, deeply, oh, you're, you're my, anti-Semite. Geez, 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 right I mean, God. Issues How come no one told me this before he came on? I would have, I would have objected. <laughs> you know my feelings about these matters. Um, I, I, I offend to your use of Jew face. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, we can, we can, we can apply this all over and then we have this, this incredible, incredibly stultifying culture that we live in where you can't make music if you're culturally appropriating it. You can't talk about issues. If you are that person, you can't play a character if you're, unless you're a part of that group and then denying that people from outside of groups have brought incredible and interesting insights to, you know, literature, you know, history, political science about issues that they don't have quote unquote firsthand experience. I mean, imagine all the people writing about the civil war, I mean, I, I, I guess we, we can't have firsthand experience, but do you have to be a northerner? Do you have to be black to write about slavery? This stuff is actually becoming more common. This is a more common. And then when I read like fragments of Robin D'Angelo's absolutely insane, idiotic, insipid book, which is sold combined hardcover and paperback, almost close to two million copies. So she's doing something right and making wow. piles of money. I mean, nobody sells that kind of, I mean, this is the, the closest. Uh, the analog that I can find is Alan Bloom writing The Closing of the American Mind in 1986, I think, and being a surprise bestseller and he becoming quite rich uh, from it in a very good novel, but actually people underrated novel uh, by Saul Bellow uh, called Ravelstein about the, the final years of Bloom's life, who became kind of a, a dilettante and a playboy and a rich guy because he wrote a book that I still can hardly get through that sold how many 4 million copies at the time. But this is becoming more and more mainstreamed. And, and people look at you with this kind of furrowed brow and an arched eyebrow that, wait, why would you think that you could speak to these experiences? I'm not speaking to anybody's experience because that's not what we're doing. You're shifting the goalposts. I'm not speaking about experiences, but I can talk about politics and I can talk about how issue, political issues affect black Americans. You know, I'm not talking about writing the Moynihan report, the Michael Moynihan report. <laughs> this is a different thing. I mean, I just generally speaking about these things, that is a weird chilling effect that people talk less about because People kind of give you a weird eye if you speak about these issues. And, and one other thing is that we're in a country right now that, you know, I had a conversation literally today with somebody who said that they were not entirely convinced that race relations had improved very much since, you know, whatever, 1968. And this is a conversation that I've had a lot mm. and I've talked on this show about it before. And I remembered that there was a poll recently that I cannot believe people didn't make a bigger deal out of. Because it shows an enormous amount of progress. It shows that we live in an incredible country in some ways. That 76%, I believe it was, of Americans said that racism mm -hmm. is a big problem in the United States. And the implication is there it's a big problem that they would like to solve. And the, the follow-up questions suggested that too. And I mean, that polling and the, the, the positive poll numbers of Black Lives Matter tells you something, doesn't it? I mean, it tells you yeah. that we, we, I mean, I, am I look wrong in the, this? Is this crazy? Look at the uh, the polling numbers that are really indicative in, on those uh, lines over a long period of time is 
um, whether you'd be okay, whether your kid yes, that's right. someone of a different race. A huge which difference, yeah. 1968, which is only one year after Loving versus Virginia, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, legalized so crazy. on the Supreme Court level. Like it was illegal uh, in states. Of it's insane, yeah. Other places. We've made, uh, we've made no progress since then, Matt, so. Uh, but like uh, people were like, <laughs> okay, it might be legal, but I don't like it. That was a, a common view in 1968. That view has vanished. The only people that uh, that you don't that people don't want their kids to marry is someone who is either Democrat or Republican. Now, that's yes. A, a, that's a, well, if they say that there's a Bradley that, uh, effect on this, that's great. The Bradley well, effect is a good thing because if people feel like they have to lie to pollsters, then they have to lie in general about their shitty views. That's progress. Sorry, I should go ahead. No, there's 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 a very clever political science experiment on this because polls, you know, they can be the Bradley effect. Now, as Michael is saying, the fact that the Bradley effect has come into existence is itself a sign of progress because in the 60s, people were perfectly happy to say, well, of course, I don't want my daughter to marry somebody of a different race, right? And thankfully, that's not another case. So even in a legislation reading of a let polls, me eject a footnote. Progress. Yes. Inject a footnote. The Bradley effect references uh, L.A. Uh, uh, L.A. Mayor Tom Bradley, who is a black former police chief uh, who is running uh, to, to be the mayor of L.A. And uh, if I remember it correctly, it's that people said more than they actually wanted to, that they were going to vote for him because they wanted to show virtue. And so that polls will overcount people being tolerant of black people because they feel like they need to have that effect. There is also some dispute in the literature, as Yasha well knows and can cite, uh, that how much that is the thing. Go on, Yasha. Uh, well, so so there's this different study, which I think is really interesting, where they tell people, you know, they get them to the lab and say, hey, you know, we have to figure out whom to give this college fellowship to. So we're going to show you a couple of high school CVs and you got to decide which of these two applicants you think should get fellowship or scholarship, right? And so they vary it by a few things. So vary it by GPA. Once the person has a mediocre GPA, once they have a good GPA, they vary it by race. So once um, they didn't say the race uh, explicitly, but, you know, one of them, they were sort of, um, you know, the president of like the, you know, African-American student association, the high school and the other civil president, you know, of the like Italian-American association or like whatever, right? So like something that sort of quite clearly indicates the likely race. Um, and then the third they do is that on one of the CVs, we have a president of a democratic club and the other, we have a president of a Republican club. Now it turns out that uh, most people uh, favor members of their own group by a little bit. Interestingly, with the exception of uh, liberal white people who don't favor white people for the scholarship. Um, (laughs) But by far and away, the bigger impact is political party. So so whites, Mm -hmm. on the whole, do slightly prefer the white candidate. By by a couple of percentage points, they're more likely to give uh, the white applicant the scholarship, um, as do other, other ethnicities. Um, the Democrats are way more likely to give a president of a Democratic club the scholarship. And Republicans are way more likely to give a president of a Republican club the scholarship. Now, this is interesting because it's not what people say, right? They're just comparing these two CVs, right? And it's just by the aggregate of all the people who's taking the study, you can see what actually is driving those decisions. So there's no worry about the Bradley effect. There's no worry about people not 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 wanting to say what they think, they're not realizing what's driving their own decision here. And it turns out that actually, in this context at least, they discriminate way more 
by political leaning and ideology than we do by race. Uh, can I ask one last question, Camille, before you, you do a, a hard shift? Um, it's for both Yasha and Camille, but maybe Yasha should take it, which is as a uh, signatory, as one of the 153 and shrinking by the hour number of, of signatories to this uh, Harper's letter. Uh, fake news, fake news. Yeah, okay. Um, no, I mean, some uh, people did actually. They were like, oh my God, I didn't realize I was going to be criticized. At least one would deny two, right? having signed a few. it, even for Harper says that they fact checked it and had checked with her. I mean, anyway, it's amazing. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, yeah. Do you, is it possible that you too, unlike me and Moynihan, who are clean, um, are uh, a kind of uh, guilty slash victim of being uh, confusing the very online life with the real life? Are you confusing Twitter mobs and swarms with actual human beings who don't really participate and are affected by all of that? Is the discourse... Uh, just like you looking at this, this, this crazy, you know, cloud coming at you, dust storm coming at you on Twitter, and maybe you're overstating things. I mean, I, I would say that the, the, there is certainly a difference between Twitter and much of our real lives. But if the past six weeks or so has taught us anything, it's that the things that are animated on Twitter can have very real consequences in real life. And oftentimes when a mob is whipped up, and an outrage is is brewing on Twitter, it can have very tangible consequences for you at work. You might get fired if a sufficient number of people are complaining about you online. Um, and obviously, when I said the five to six weeks, I'm talking about the wave of demonstrations which have been pushed and organized online, considering there isn't much else that could happen here. We're not meeting each other um, in the streets these days. Um, in fact, a lot of these... Uh, very potent leaderless movements that have been uh, so prominent in the in our political on our on the political scene in the Americas for much of the last decade have largely lived online until they are actually given some sort of embodiment in in the form of some sort of demonstrations or encampments. Um, so I, I don't know that there is a a, a a real distinction that needs to be drawn there in order to demonstrate that this is a problem that's sufficient, sufficiently important that it ought to be addressed. Yeah. I would just add that, you know, I think it is clearly worse online and it's clearly worse in a progressive context, right? I mean, the more you are within a, a progressive bubble, the more likely it is that you're going to be canceled by that. Now there's a right version of that. I mean, if you were a lifelong conservative and in 2016, you opposed Donald Trump, you were canceled from, uh, you know, with, from your institutions and so on as well. So there was absolutely a fear of dissenting from Donald Trump on that side. Um, but, um, but increasingly it's hitting normal people as well. And to me, you know, the story of Emmanuel Cafferty was so um, striking for that reason. But in the, you know, 10 days since I've uh, published that article, I've gotten, you know, emails from all kinds of people. I didn't research all of them out um, with stories that look pretty nuts as well. Um, so I think that one of the reasons to stand up against it now is that for now, uh, most Americans who are normies uh, don't fear this stuff and it's unlikely to hit them. Uh, but already some of them are being hit by it. Um, and this culture is spreading very rapidly. Um, and if we don't step in now, if we don't express the danger of that now, if we don't have a courage of our convictions at this point, um, 
then quite quickly the rest, you know, already um, the whole of the progressive space and the mainstream publications and universities uh, are starting to look like sort of undergraduate life on college campuses five years ago. Um, and if we don't send to, up to it now, then five years from now, um, it could be all of corporate life. And five years after that, it could be small and medium companies around the country. And one thing I'd add to that is that well, in, you know, journalism is when you said that a lot of places feel like, you know, campus life and a lot of publications to me increasingly feel like college newspapers. And that's kind of the, the, the level of discourse and the type of argument that I'm seeing. But the thing that's frightening to me is that, you know, the teachers are afraid of the pupils at this point. I mean, if there is, if, you know, in my company, some person that I hired, you know, six months ago who had no experience in the industry that I had 25 years of experience was telling me what to do and was going out in public, in public, denouncing their own employer as if they work at the MTA or something, if they work at a public works project. And this has become incredibly normal. And, you know, the, the, the Vox thing is, a, is, is an example. I see it all the time. People saying, you know, this person within the organization or my organization does not handle these issues. Well, go to fucking HR. We are actually at a point that there's so many of these young, young people, and I'm sorry to sound like an old fogey, but I've seen it so many times. Yeah. Of that, that I'm not at all. Um, I've seen it so many times that people come in and they say, this is not like the college newspaper I worked on. This is not like the climate I was used to on campus. And these ideas I didn't hear at all. And I think we need to do something about it. And they, and, and not only is it the re- revolt from below, but it's usually taken public and because understand that, that there's an enormous amount of pressure that's brought to bear at that point. But it's also that it's, it's accepted. I mean, if someone is making a charge of an ism, you know, whether it's racism, sexism, et cetera, transphobia, and they bring that public, you're not going to get fired for it. You're just not going to. It's, I mean, they, the companies know it's bad for them. You're the not going to get thing, fired for bringing it. Yeah, no, for bringing it. Yeah, it, for, for bringing that to, to, to attention that way. And it's also true that if you have an NDA, for instance, and, you, you, and they're about a certain issue, you are you can break that NDA. You can. I mean, no one is going to, to to take someone who has, you know, been, you know, came to an agreement. I wouldn't say silence. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. Come to an agreement and sign an NDA. And there's a cash, usually some sort of cash that changes hands. You don't have to abide by that anymore because no one is going to do anything about it. And that, I think, is the problems in 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 a lot of um, journalistic institutions. Is they're absolutely terrified. Of the young people, people have told me this in that exact phrase. We're terrified of the young people that we've hired. I've heard that phrase fifty times. Yes, I mean it is like. And by the way, by yeah. some people who are themselves young and have voted, publicly advocated the election of Bernie Sanders, right? Oh I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, whole, like, I think most of them are from people that I know who, who who voted for Bernie Sanders in primaries. When people say that they're terrified by young people, that that I presume what they actually mean is not merely young people. It's probably the the youthful energy of the left, which, Yasha, I think brings me to a question that, and um, give you some background information, folks. Yasha and I spoke yesterday for like an hour, so I already know what he might say in response to this. But I he, think might be, he must be exhausted by this conversation. Jesus <laughs> no, this is the conversa- only conversation. We demand a lot of Yasha. It, actually. <laughs> um, but there is, there's Something you said at the very beginning of this conversation about the right and the threat from the right, and it's obvious that much of the conversation that we've had has been about the response, not from the right, but the left, 
And in a moment, I think we should probably talk at least a little bit about President Trump's attempt to reboot the reboot of his campaign um, and his speech from uh, Mount Rushmore. Um, I wonder, Yasha, if you could defend the proposition that the principal threat to liberal democracy and these these values that we hold dear is emanating from the populist right and yeah. not at the moment from where it seems to be from the left. I mean, when I when I'm looking at the responses, it's not, you know, MAGA hat people who are are coming for me online or coming for us corporately who are misrepresenting the contents of this statement, um, annotating images of it by suggesting that every place where we say something like the free exchange of information and ideas um, is the lifeblood of a liberal society, put put essentially inserting about trans people in all of these statements to make it seem as though the entire thing is a campaign against them. It's, it's absurd. It's hysterical. Um, but I think it's also dangerous. So where is the, where is the real power center um, in terms of the danger that's being posed right now? And is it, is it important to differentiate between the threat posed by folks on the left who are um, illiberal and folks on the right who are illiberal? Well, look, I think that the left holds cultural power and the right holds political power in the country at the moment. And one of the big dangers is that this will continue to be the case and reinforce each other. Um, so the left is, uh, you know, very worried about the political power that people like Donald Trump hold and therefore feels like everything is a catastrophe and uh, that is conducive to certain moral panics. Um, and then the right feels, well, we're in political power, but look at how the left is winning over culture war and how, uh, you know, nobody can speak their mind and so on and so forth. And so we need to hold on to political power desperately because otherwise we're going to be completely uh, run out of town. And that's a very, very um, negative projection, I think, of how the United States might go. Um, so that's one point. The second point is that, look, um, uh, you know, there is a form of cancel culture on the right as well. I mean, you know, I'm friends with uh, some of the never Trump uh, conservatives, so, you know, people like David French, who, by the way, is part of the Board of Advisors of Persuasion, www.persuasion.community. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in, that's smooth, was it? But in 2016, um, you know, he spoke out very prominently against Donald Trump. He's been a lifelong member of a conservative movement. Um, and not only did he end up leaving National Review, and not only was he under tremendous amounts of professional pressure, um, but, you know, there was just a nasty campaign against him. Uh, from the right, including, uh, you know, people uh, uh, photoshopping pictures of his adopted daughter, whose origins are in Ethiopia, um, you know, into concentration camps, and just utterly nasty, right? So, so, so that stuff exists on the right as well, and it would exist even more strongly if they properly uh, won the, the culture war, won the struggle for power in this country. But the third is the, the point about political power. That, you know, when you look around the world right now and you look at people like Recep Erdogan in Turkey, people like Viktor Orban in Hungary, people like Narendra Modi in India, people like Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, they all are attacking free institutions, not just on Twitter, not just by firing people from, uh, you know, uh, magazines, um, but in very, very real ways uh, through their actions. Now, some of them are further advanced and some of them are less far advanced. In Turkey, there are thousands of journalists who... Uh, are in prison. Um, there are tens of thousands of civil servants who have lost their job. Um, speaking out against Recep Erdogan is a dangerous thing to do in Turkey today. And that was a flawed but a real democracy uh, 20 years ago. Um, India is 
quickly going in the same direction. Hungary has uh, is nearly there. Um, Brazil is, is a more recent case, and it's a little bit harder to see. And in the United States, frankly, we've been quite able to resist Donald Trump uh, so far. And Trump, uh, thankfully, is not the most talented or disciplined um, uh, of, of these populists. So, you know, at the moment, uh, especially with the polls looking as they are, uh, the threat looks uh, less bad. But I think if Donald Trump won this fall and had four more years to undermine independent institutions, um, to to attack the basic elements of our democracy that would be very dangerous. If a smarter version of Donald Trump got elected in 2024 or 2028, if somebody like Tucker Carlson used a, a Trumpian style of governance um, but much more effectively in a much more disciplined way, um, I think uh, that would be a tremendous danger to democracy, which is, you know, deeper than... Uh, Sad cases like Emmanuel Kafka getting fired or um, David Chaw getting fired at Civil Analytics and all of those other kinds of things. But it's different than Hungary, for instance, where the political institutions in Hungary are not as robust and obviously a lot more recent. I mean, as, as you know, being post-communist is that, you know, in the United States is that it, what can Trump do? And I mean, it's not asking for specific responses here. But there's a lot, uh, the way the American government is formulated, the way, way it exists, it's very difficult to do what Viktor Orban did. And, you know, to have a state-run well, newspaper that, and, you know, sort of create, you know, journalism laws and, and that, that uh, put people, you know, not necessarily in jail, but put them on their, on their back heels in a lot of ways. You know, the, the laws that Orban, and, well, in, you know, in Turkey, it's entirely different. Erdogan is just, just totally undermined what shreds, what even small bits of democracy that you saw. Um, can that actually happen in the U.S. in, four, for, in the next four years if Trump won? Well, look, I don't think that uh, those two countries are the same, but we'll get to exactly the same place. Um, I'll just point out the political scientists thought that Hungary was a consolidated democracy mm. uh, when Viktor Orban was elected in 2010. So, you know, in retrospect, it's easy to say, well, of course, these two countries are completely different. And one of them has this very stable democracy. And the other one, you know, is much more recent democracy has a different constitutional setup. Sure. Uh, at the time, uh, political scientists would have acknowledged that democratic breakdown was less likely in the United States than in Hungary, but they would have said, you know what, Hungary is very safe. Like, we really don't have to worry about the future of democracy in this country. And that turned out to be very wrong. Um, uh, and, you know, in some ways, Trump has proven to be more amateurish and more ineffective than we might have feared four years ago. But in other ways, he has gotten his control, you know, control over the uh, machinery of state quite well. I mean, the fact that at this point, uh, the Department of Justice um, makes, uh, you know, completely unprecedented favors for uh, Trump's friends um, is, is, is striking. I mean, the fact that, you know, career prosecutors are being pushed um, to reduce what kind of sentences they ask for for Trump's friends um, means that, uh, you know, the most important institutions are now subject to political will and whim in a way that we haven't seen in the recent past or in the past in the United States. And it makes me fearful of whether, um, you know, once the Department of Justice is willing to let people off because they're friends of Donald Trump, might they start investigating people because they're enemies of Donald Trump? I don't think it's a huge step from one to the other. And four more years of Donald Trump might well get us there. A couple of quick points. The uh, uh, Hungary, where I lived uh, from 95 to 98 and covered their passing of, a, of uh, their media law, their first post-communist media law. It's the main thing that I worked on when I was there. Um, uh, suffered 
at the time through 2010 and beyond with a kind of a fatal flaw of an unrequited nationalism um, stemming from the Treaty of Trianon and other things like that. They, they like had this itch that couldn't that was never scratched and that contributed to things. So kids out there, don't be super nationalist. Uh, it's going to lead you down bad paths. Um, but uh, the a point about uh, uh, Trump in America and America and media that I think is worth thinking about is that, yes, Trump cannot wave his magic wand and suddenly have Ajit Pai at the FCC, you know, investigating NBC Comcast because of alleged violations of the Fairness Doctrine, which no longer exists and whatnot. Um, thank God. Um, he has uh, sicked the uh, Department of Justice onto antitrust enforcement in ways that um, maybe a lot of Democrats and progressives would like uh, uh, I, that I don't um, and, and uh, sort of directing them uh, more towards enforcement of uh, media companies. Um, but to Yasha's point um, that I think it's worth thinking through with Trump is the extent to which he redirects the politics and policy kind of priorities of conservatives and Republicans in this country, which is to say that for 40 or 50 years, the main uh, major party expression of media reform and kind of approach towards media policy uh, from uh, the Republican point of view was deregulatory. Let's open up the spectrum. Let's get rid of certain doctrines that restrict speech and let's open things up. That has now decisively changed, and there's a whole generation, Josh Hawley specifically, who are attacking uh, Section 230 of the uh, Inter uh, Internet Communications, whatever the hell, uh, Act from 1996, and who are like backfilling Trumpism with actual policy, which from my point of view is bad, restrictive, punitive policy. It takes a while for those things to work through, but that has started to work through and you see like gormless uh, uh principleless people like Ted Cruz signing on to those things in ways that are divorced from basic kind of uh factualness um so i think we will see that kind of uh, you know smart trumpism for lack of a better word uh be more dominant uh in republican circles across a variety of uh uh, of sort of like media policy, freedom of speech issues, and those things on themselves. And we and the preview was the um, the FOSTA SESTA law from I think 2018, which is allegedly uh, against uh, sex trafficking, but which made uh, web publishers liable for the behavior of the comments of people or the actions of people in their comments board in the name of fighting uh, sex trafficking. Um, this. Is was the beginning of, and this was a hugely bipartisan thing. There was like only like a handful of people on both sides of the aisle who voted no against it. Um, but now that has become a Republican and conservative dogma, and the next generation of uh, Trumpites who will be a little bit more cleaned up will have thought through their way of of uh, changing law and passing things and trying to make politics around that stuff. Well, for for the record, I I would concur that both sides have a lot of awful qualities, and I think that the 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 best version 
of the Trump administration bad argument has been rendered. I will say that I'm probably a little less likely to subscribe to the to the most sinister version of the Trump administration's role in corrupting the Justice Department of that particular narrative. Um, I've, I've at least read some accounts of what's happening in certain some of those cases to be a little less nervous about some of those things, but I would certainly concur with the broad sweep of what's been articulated. That said, um, the recent remarks given by the president at Mount Rushmore make one wonder if there might not be an opportunity to to pull off something like the First Step Act, which is to say, take an administration that seems to not really be an ally on a particular sort of issue, like, say, criminal justice reform, and pull them in the direction of fighting for policies and ideas and values that you think are important. Um, it's a rather bizarre circumstance. The president goes to Mount Rushmore. Um, there was quite a bit of hand-wringing before he got there because there was some expectation that he would give a speech that was very divisive. Um, and in the media coverage afterwards, it certainly suggests that the speech was quite divisive. Um, but in listening to it, a lot of the things that the president says uh, in his speech sound like things that have been said both in that letter that some of us signed um, and Yasha that have been articulated by you with respect to the perils of cancel culture. Um, there's quite a bit of sort of nationalistic, no, no, really, no, really, patriotic. So if you say, tell people that uh, I said the same <laughs> yeah, thing as yeah. Donald Trump. But. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's quite a bit of nationalistic chest thumping in there as well. And some very characteristic Trumpisms um, as he's telling the story of the founders um, and how noble and virtuous they are. Um, he ends that section of the speech by talking about the the beautiful wall that's being built, although I'm not sure if he called it beautiful in that context. But at other moments, the president goes on to say that describing the, the goals of the agitated protesters um, who have taken to the streets across the country, he says that um, one of their political weapons is cancel culture, driving people from their jobs, shaming dissenters and demanding total submission from anyone who disagrees. This Total is the very definition commitment. of totalitarianism, <laughs> and it is completely alien to our culture and our values and is absolutely no place in the United States of America. The attack on our liberty, our magnificent liberty, must be stopped, and it will be stopped very quickly. We will expose this dangerous movement, protect our nation's children, end this radical assault, and preserve our beloved a beloved American way of life. I will say, and there was some hearty applause after this, I will say that even in the moments where the president managed to say, manages to say something that I generally agree with, he manages to end it in a way that's like more than a little, what do you mean you will stop it and expose it? What are you talking about, dude? Um, that makes me slightly nervous. Um, I wonder what you gentlemen make of the president's speech and, and quite frankly of the reaction to it, because depending on who you read, this was either Trump at his most fascist um, or this is Trump who is explicitly using racist dog whistles, as it was described in a, a recent edition of The Daily this week. Um, but I don't know. There's it seems like a mix of of really good things um, and some not so good things. But what do you guys suspect is going on here? What do you think? I mean, the. Uh 
the reaction to the speech that I noticed the most, besides your like, you know, teenage girl enthusiasm, Camille, uh, was uh, similar eruptions. Similar eruptions of "Oh, please, he finally did it!" from like Rich Lowry, from Patrick Buchanan, <laughs> as published on Lou Rockwell, uh, as, from Ben Dominic. Ben, what's up, dude? Uh, from a bunch of people <laughs> like, are we really we talking about speeches? Are we, talk, it's we June, talking? It's June. It's July. It, it's July twenty. We're talking about speeches. 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 <laughs> Speeches. Yeah. We got 130,000 yes, dead people. We're talking about speeches. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? You're talking about speeches? You think, uh, oh, oh, look, he speeched. That's going to change everything. What are you, Thomas L. <laughs> fucking Friedman? Oh, dear. That's insulting. What the fuck? Who gives a shit about speeches? The country Camille was sucks. in the back of a cab in Beirut, and he talked to a guy <laughs> <laughs> about this speech. Um, the no, great, like, and, no. And, what, and what the coronavirus told me is... <laughs> <laughs> While playing golf. Uh, no, I mean, I, I'm being uh, only a slightly uh, hyperbolic, not nearly as hyperbolic as Trump talking about, you know, the, uh, the new totalitarianism and the far-left fascism and whatnot. The uh, ex- I, what I did uh, take out of the expression of palpable relief, momentary, very momentary relief oh, uh, among a bunch of conservative pundits, they would love it. They would love it if this election that we're about to have that no one's paying attention to <laughs> for the reasons that America is crazy and going through a lot of trauma right now. They would love it if it was a pitched battle between Antifa and people who love America, because that would make it so easy, so much easier mm-hmm. to be a conservative, to be a Republican, to be someone who knows that Trump may has have a few rough edges, you know, and maybe he's not the ideal person, the ideal messenger. But my God, have you seen those looters? Have you seen the far left and their and their control over the, all the institutions? Uh, we have to at long last stand up and they would love it if that's what Trump would be from now until November. And of course, of course, if you've paid any attention to Donald Trump ever in your fucking <laughs> life, that's not what he's going to do. Jesus fucking Christ. Are you kidding me? Like he's going to be a disciplined messenger for this, for the, no, the next day he was ripping NASCAR, a new one for getting rid of the Confederate flag. What does that mm-hmm. have to do with, with like upholding these treasured American values and our symbols that we're not going to let the far left fascist totalitarian the treasured or whatever. American values of rebelling I, against the United States of America? I think I, I think I think I could actually posit an answer to that question, though, Matt. And Tell me. if I was to posit an answer to that question, playing devil's advocate here or at least steel manning, um, <laughs> I would say that what the president is suggesting there is not dissimilar from what he was suggesting back a few years ago, maybe three years ago, when he said, you know, okay, so you want to take down Robert E. Lee? You know, I hear they also want to take down Stonewall Jackson. What's next? George Washington? Thomas Jefferson? And at the time but, but Camille, when I the president said is, this, now, at the time when the president said this, he was derided. But, but, but it there seems is, that we have arrived there. But there is a principal distinction between those two, right? So, um, what I would say on the topic of statues is, first of all, that when you remove a statue, it has to be through uh, due process and you should destroy it, you should 
observe it somewhere, even if it's above someone. Um, but I think this, the straightforward distinction is what we're honoring people for. Are we honoring people for great things that we still believe to be great, even though we know that they were flawed people? Or are we honoring them for something that is bad? Now, you know, people like, like Robert E. Lee, um, you know, the only reason to honor them is that they rebelled against union. Why should we be honoring that in the first place? A lot of statues to people like Robert E. Lee were erected in the 50s and 60s as a sort of fuck you response to the civil rights movement. So again, I'm not in favor of pulling those down, uh, you know, with like a group of 30 people just like smashing it one, one night. I think that's terrible. Um, uh, but I am in favor of removing them. And I think we can absolutely make a principal distinction uh, between that and, you know, pulling down statues of George Washington because next to the wonderful achievements for which we honor him, um, he has also done some bad things. In this. Now, um, I, I want to sort of just pick up on your last um, point of puzzlement for Camille, and I really can't best Matt's uh, anger at the speech, so I'm just going to I'm just going to associate myself formally oh, I'm with not that. Anger, just drunk. Um, <laughs> it's a, you know, it's he's a good it's a good rant. We just but, press a button but, and he does it. But you know, at the end, he was sort of just like, "Well, you know, what he was saying sort of sounded good, but is he really, you know?" And then the, 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 in four years of people ranting and raining against Donald Trump. And in four years of me trying to make the case against Donald Trump, by far and away the best, the most convincing critique of Trump I have seen, the most subtle critique of Trump I have seen, was by a comedian whose name I sadly forget at the Comedy Cellar, um, who's a sort of working-class white guy from Jersey. And he's like, you know, I'm going to butcher this, by the way, obviously. He's like, you know, I kind of... He's German, ladies and gentlemen. He's German, he's a German, you know, yeah. You know, I kind of, when, when, when Trump talks, I'm not trying to be accent. When Trump no. talks, you know, I, I kind of, you know, some of the things he promises, you know, are pretty good. He says, no, I'm going to give everybody a job. I'm like, I want everybody to have a job. That sounds good. But is it that easy? Is that, is that going to work? I, I just don't quite have a good feeling, you know, about it. But like, when he says, hey, I'm going to, you know. Make sure that we're all great, long, great, you know. And I said, well, that sounds great. I, I like that. I like that. But is Trump going to make us get along? I just, you know, I, I have a bit of an uneasy feeling about it. I mean, there's something so like the, the, the thing to hit Trump on is not um, his bigotry and his racism and, 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 and all of those things. I mean, people either know that and, and agree that's terrible or, 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 or they don't hate him for it, but like, you know, that's been the topic of conversation for four years. I think the thing to hit people, uh, to, to hit Trump on in the election um, is the sense that actually you've been caught and he's promised these things, but we're never quite realistic and you have a mark um, and, you know, he may promise you these great things, but do you really believe that he's going to deliver any of that? Do you really believe he has delivered any of that in the last week? I mean, it's a, I think it's a decent tactic now on, on his part because, you know, he spent every moment up until COVID um, thinking that this election not necessarily would be a cakewalk, but it'd be fairly easy because the economy was so good. And you heard it in every utterance, every breath he took, he would say something about how fantastic the economy was, like nothing else in it. And he was just going to, he was going to do that, right? And now you even have like Brian Kilmeade on Fox uh, attacking a Trump spokesman saying, you can't tell us that we're better off than we were three years ago. So this, this was today. So even, I mean, even the people that were, were his allies are, are turning on, on that. So what better issue than something that has been taken out of the Twitter sphere 
and debated by people at, you know, Vox or whatever, the Jacobin, and taken to the streets. And people can actually see on the news every night is a George Washington statue, Ulysses Grant statue, uh, Jefferson statues being pulled down. Not, you know, ignore the, the Confederate ones, because now it's gone to that other place that, as Camille said, he happened to get right um, after Charlottesville. I mean, it wasn't wasn't a very difficult prediction, but he was actually, um, you know, maligned for it. And um, I'm not I don't defend him on anything but that because there was a lot of silly stuff like, oh, God, that's never going to happen. That's never going to happen. But that it does happen. It's a fantastic culture war issue issue because it is um, a mob it's not even that, oh, they're on the wrong side of this, this issue. It is, it is rule by mob, decision by mob. America's past is going to be determined by an unruly gang of 45 people in Portland with balaclavas on. People don't like that. And I think that that's what he's banking on. It's not enough to come back from this enormous deficit that is, that, 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 um, he's facing with, with Joe Biden. But this other thing is that when he, he lurches into you can't, he doesn't do it cleanly. And that's the problem because you have guys like Stephen Miller writing these speeches, whereas, you know, living in this different universe that you have to throw the word fascism and, you know, leftist fascism. And then in response to that, Camille sent me a piece from what was it, foreign policy, Camille, of somebody saying that uh, right, yeah. that it was Trump's fascist, uh, his most fascist speech is the closest he's come to fascism. Uh, a, history, a history professor, Federico uh, Finchelstein. Uh, said this in foreign policy. I have been saying this on the show for for a very long time. And now um, when we have a guest who's actually German, um, when, of course, we talk about fascism, we we are talking about, you know, fascismus is not, you know, Salazar. We're not talking about Franco. We're not talking about Mussolini. It's, it's, it's supposed to be redolent of Hitler. Okay. So we're calling somebody a Nazi. He's calling liberals Nazis. They're called like his enemies calling him Nazi. We had Tim Snyder on the show, who's a very good historian, not particularly good political thinker, uh, unfortunately, who, you know, said everything that Trump is presaging fascism. The same thing happened, of course, uh, with Naomi Wolf during the Bush administration. It comes every, every time there's a Republican administration. We, you know, the, the other side will do things like, you know, call Obama a Muslim or a Maoist or something. But there's always this version of it. But it, I really just hope that it's never going to happen, but that we can uh, retire this because the, the, the ideas are, there's no ideas behind it. It's a completely empty thing. Nobody understands what fascism other than an epithet of an enemy that I don't like. But Donald Trump isn't being a fascist. He's being boorish. That's mostly what he is. He's, I mean, there's no underlying political ideology that would track with fascism. And the, the hard thing about fascism, there's not a coherent political ideology to fascism in general. So in maybe in that way, it's kind of like Donald Trump. <laughs> so, you know, anyway, well, the fascism think- bit bothered me. So, so, I mean, defining fascism is hard, and I'm not going to try doing it right now, but I think one of the core elements of fascism is that it is pretty openly anti-democratic. Yes. Right? Like, fascists are not saying, hey, I'm the real Democrat. They are saying that you know, democracy is bad and wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, I think of Donald Trump and these other figures I've mentioned, like Modi and Bolsonaro and so on, as populists and that's not the most fortunate term because there's also the populist party in 19th century America, which isn't really related, which is sort of a different topic. Um, the populist always sounds like you're accusing people of wanting to be popular. And so, um, you know, why shouldn't they be popular? That's part of democracy, right? So it's not a great term. And I've sort of half given up the battle on making people stick with the term. 
Uh, but whatever you want to call it, I think that there is something that connects those political figures. And uh, what that is, is uh, their claim that they and they alone speak for the people. Mm-hmm. That, uh, you know, if you disagree with Trump, then you're not a real American. If you disagree with Trump, then you're an enemy of America in some ways. Um, so what they're claiming is that they are more democratic than anybody else because they're going to sweep aside all of these uh, anti-American institutions and elites and so on. Um, you know, they're going to put people like Trump in power and he will actually speak for real Americans like, quote, unquote, you and me. Um, and that, to me, explains a lot of the energy of the movement. It also explains when and how Trump gets into conflict with our democracy. Because it's not that Trump comes in being like, I'm a secret fascist, I have a master plan, and I'm going to, you know, turn this into a hierarchical society in which I tell people what to do and when they do stuff, right? That's silly. Um, but what Trump does do is that he says, well, look, I'm the elected president. I'm the person who actually speaks for the American people. So why is it that the Department of Justice, which is, you know, a government institution, is prosecuting my friends? Well, that doesn't seem right. But I'm the president. How is it that, uh, you know, the Supreme Court is overruling what, what, what I'm supposed to do? I, I don't like that idea. And so that's why populists <laughs> are sort of pushed more and more towards weakening and undermining all of those independent institutions because they don't see them as legitimate. Because they think, I represent the people. How can it be these other institutions and these other political actors that stop me from doing what I want? There's something wrong with this. Um, so that, to me, is sort of why, why, why this concept of populism, this concept of the exclusive representation of the people, something that, by the way, um, uh, Evo Morales in Bolivia has expressed better than anything else from his Twitter, Twitter handle, of all things, which is Evo es Pueblo. Evo mm-hmm. is, is the, the people. Public. Yeah. If yeah. he is the people of a public... Well, uh, you know, how dare anybody disagree with him? And clearly, but, but they are Yasha, not is it, part of the people. Uh, that, to me, explains Trump much better than this idea of fascism and so on. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and but, but Yasha, to, to your point about the people, um, and, and it's good that you mentioned Morales. Uh, Chavez was was similar. Maduro, uh, a kind of weak version of it. But isn't that always the case with semi-authoritarian, authoritarian, and dictatorial movements? I can't think of of one uh, that doesn't i mean the the animating principle which is is you know poorly translated in english but the animating principle of nazism is the volksgemeinschaft right and it's like you know the people's community everything had folk volkswagen volksempfänger like there's the people the people the people and this is the same thing is is true in pe- the people's democracies which are communist i mean it's always the invocation of of the people and that it, it, that always kind of makes my makes my uh, the hair stand up in the back of my neck when you're constantly referencing you're doing things for the people. But it doesn't seem to have one political, uh, particular political ideology uh, attached to it. There's a, uh, there's a pretty good, and uh, Yasha, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you might have been associated with it, or maybe I'm just inventing this in my late night stupor, but um, uh, the Tony Blair Institute or, or a Tony Blair-related institute has done some uh, pretty useful work on identifying the rise of populism worldwide the last 10 years. And I, granted, I can hear the snickers from the peanut gallery. Oh, yeah, Tony Blair <laughs> talking about populism. You go fuck yourself. But uh, um, would they delineate between – they have uh, three categories of sort of like classic right populist, classic left populist. So there's Bolsonaro and you know Duterte over here, and then you have Evo Morales over here. And then they kind of like – 
create some middle category, which is more um, formless that I think Berlusconi gets into. But uh, it's an interesting taxonomy, and they've done actually some pretty good research into that. Yasha, you weren't you weren't part of that, or you were part of that? I, I, yeah, I, I wrote that study with a couple of uh, yes. colleagues. Yeah, so it was uh, it's, it's a very good study, and I highly recommend it to anyone. And don't let the name Tony Blair get you down. Go on. Well, I think the, the main point about the study is that um, you know populists are dangerous, irrespective of which part of the political spectrum. They are on. So uh, right-wing populists are dangerous. There were fewer left-wing populists, but where they were in power, they were as likely to damage the democratic institutions. And some of those less clearly ideologically defined populists uh, were dangerous in in similar ways as well. So you mentioned Silvio Berlusconi, who was sort of a center-right-ish populist, but he really wasn't a, a far-right populist in the way that a lot of the current crop is. And he certainly wasn't a left-wing populist. Um, but also somebody like Alberto Fujimori, in Peru, who really destroyed democratic institutions there uh, for, for, for a good few years, um, who was sort of ideologically much harder to place. Now, um, just for the heck of it, I'm going to tell you my favorite story about Alberto Fujimori. <laughs> so it's interesting. That's, that's, this is the kind of podcast we have here, yes. By the way, the greatest thing about him is he's a uh, of Japanese extraction, but he was called locally El Chino, uh, the which is the Absolutely Chinese right. person, yes. So, and thank you, Michael, you told my story. We can move on. <laughs> <laughs> is that true? That is what I, I mean. It's so oh, nuts, ah, right? You son of a bitch. This is, this is a member of an ethnic minority who gets elected president of a country, which is rare in general. He gets elected yeah. as a populist, which is even rarer, right? But, yeah. but, but a member of an ethnic minority. But, but, it is, but, but the sort of popular <laughs> ignorance, nevertheless, is such that this Japanese guy is called Poppy El Chino and plays yeah. with it. Like in some of his comp- yes. campaign adherences, you know, they have like, you know, like, like, like when he comes on, they play like a Chinese sort of song and he's wearing like a Chinese hat. <laughs> like El Chino. Uh, he's like i'm just gonna go with this <laughs> i'm not i'm actually well, not gonna this, cancel these people i'm gonna make them the people who elect me they're my constituents not very well <laughs> probably well, i do i do want to i do want to i do want to pull back and in, into the to the speech a little bit more because i think there's a bit more to mo- that's worth mining here um and there are two two things that i'd like to pursue. I mean, one is related to what we were talking about towards the, the tail end of the, the first conversation we had, which is as, as we talk about it, and I mean, we're all sort of working these problems actively and thinking about things actively, but as we talk about it, I'm trying to, to weigh the scales a little bit. And I'm thinking about what you said, Yasha, where you said, you know, the, the left has a great deal of cultural influence. They have the ability to really um, shape the way a lot of the media institutions and the academic institutions that we, our society depends upon, are very influential, um, to shape the way that they, they operate. And a lot of the, the action with respect to cancel culture is happening there. Um, and it seems that the left is perhaps poised to take political control as well. And I hear the concern for liberal democracy. And I'm generally supportive of the principles that we're talking about defending here. But I'm also remembering a lot of sort of guttural noises that I would hear at different points. Folks like Pete Buttigieg, who seem, you know, fairly moderate, but who have thoughts about how to reform the courts so that the outcomes there 
are more consistent with what he and his supporters want to accomplish, whatever it is politically. So things are just a little bit more expedient. And the thought that occurs to me is that there is already a demonstrated willingness on the part of people who are supportive of the prevailing wave of canceling people who are not merely advocating for or against, say, trans rights, but who are seen as being insufficiently supportive of a campaign to support black lives, um, which ends up taking on all sorts of different kind of nebulous um, policy objectives. Isn't it a bit disconcerting that they're likely to take control of all of the things very in very short order and that they're doesn't really seem to be a hard and fast limit on what some members of that coalition are are willing to do to people who are seen as being sort of insufficiently on board that you can get canceled you can lose your job and you know they're not putting people in camps they're not threatening to do that but there is a whole re-education process that seems to be taking place in a lot of people's places of employment like that seems like pretty pretty disconcerting. So I'll ask again, if you have to deal with like the bumbling idiot who doesn't seem to get a whole lot done, even if he has some bad ideas, versus an increasingly well-organized or at least increasingly determined left that is perhaps lost some of its commitment to some of those ideals that we were talking about earlier and is increasingly a bit more populist and a bit more assertive and perhaps just explicitly a bit more liberal. Is that not a, a more dangerous foe to have to wrangle with? So, so let, let me, I think that's an important question and let me make a passionate appeal for why you shouldn't follow that instinct. Um, so, so the first is that I do think the threat from four more years of Donald Trump would be very serious. Um, you know, he has mm-hmm. figured out how to govern much more than he did in the first year or two. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 the administration is still a shit show, but um, they actually are now quite good at pulling the administrative levers. And so I think four more years of Trump would uh, be much worse than the last four years. Um, also, I think the extent to which he would feel um, uh, validated if he managed uh, at this point to come back and win and the kind of slash and burn mentality that that would encourage would be uh, quite scary. Um, but but leave that out, right? Let's say that you discount that point. For whatever reason you think, you know, the institutions will hold and Trump is going to continue being an idiot and actually nothing, all that bad will come from it. Um, I think even then, if you, if you, if you singly care about uh, the craziness on the left, you still have two big reasons um, to prefer Biden to Trump. And the first is that I think a lot of the craziness is in fact driven by the fact that Trump is in office um, and by the sort of fear and sometimes understandable paranoia uh, that that uh, creates. Um, You know, I think in some ways the um, metaphor historically as a Jew, Michael, um, is to 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 the Black Death and 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 the poisoning of of of, of, of supposedly poisoning of the wells, right? I mean, because 
what people felt was that we're here in this village and suddenly a lot of people are dying. We don't really understand why. And it's all very scary. And we don't have any control over this virus. Um, we can't do anything about that. But what we can do is to purify our community and look at those Jews over there. They're not really an organic member of our community. They're impure. They have a wrong religion. Um, you know, let's uh, uh, have pogroms and so on and so forth. And I think there is an element of that at the moment where, you know, we cannot do anything about the fact that Tom Cotton is a United States senator who is very powerful and has some terrifying ideas, right? We're not going to manage to unseat him in the state of Arkansas. But we do have control over the New York Times. So if the New York Times allows him to publish uh, an op-ed in the Times, then we need to make sure that the Times is cancelled or that uh, the editor that uh, okayed this is cancelled and so on and so forth, right? So I think that there is a kind of substitute reaction that is actually driven by Trump's power and that's hopefully going to attenuate um, once Trump has left office. Now, the last thing is that public opinion tends to move against the president and the president's party. I mean, in some ways, Donald Trump, if you care about uh, racial justice and minorities in this country is the uh, worst thing that could have happened. In some ways, he's the best thing that w- would have happened because he's made the country much more progressive in its opinions on race um, than it was four years ago. Um, now, I think conversely, if you think that uh, sort of certain forms of, uh, let's call it wokeness, um, uh, are, are quite dangerous, then I think uh, seeing some of it have power and seeing some of it articulated at the political level, um, should hearten you because I think it will lead to a lot of Americans uh, recognizing, uh, for example, that people like Robin DiAngelo really are pretty crazy and that they don't want any truck with I would uh, just add that uh, Camille used a formulation, they're not putting people in camps, but, and I'm just trying to (laughs) imagine you using that, uh, uh, like reacting to what if Jim Acosta used that formulation. (laughs) Talking about Donald Trump's policy, I, I think that you might be. Yeah, there's a, a little bit of just a little bit of little bit of sarcasm there, Matt Welch. Sure, um, but that that's that is <laughs> that is also the uh, political reality that we live in, right? Where like everyone is hyperbolic. You're you're pointing at a speech from Donald Trump. Um, again, we're talking about speeches, um, and uh, in which he uses he has sort of broad. Uh, sympathy with some goals that you, that might coincide with the letter that you and Yasha uh, signed that Michael and I did not. Um, uh, but like it's drenched with like hyperbolic, maybe sarcasm as well. Um, and it's it's worth pointing out. I uh, I will say this. So Trump gave that speech, I believe, on July 3rd. On July 4th, like a patriotic American, I sat indoors and watched uh, fireworks in the city that I live in on television um, because that's just how bad 2020 uh, really is. And so I watched on NBC, Craig Melvin, who's a great guy hosting and it was NBC, like spirit of America. Let's like split basically grand old Opry kind of uh, Nashville performances with John legend playing at in, uh, in LA and it was totally cheesy. And then fireworks at the end and um, and I read it entirely as like this is Blue America's version of the of July Fourth, um, 
And there were it was intercut with all of these sort of like, you know, regular workers, the UPS driver and the nurse and this person. And like it was actually really skillfully done. Um, there was like a 12 year old uh, black girl who's a poet, junior poet laureate. And she was talking about the. Uh, not quite fulfilled, but still inspiring promise of the Declaration of Independence, which is kind of basically the theme of the night. And the contrast between the American Carnage 2.0 of Trump's Rushmore speech, where Antifa are like raping people outside your, your front door, and what like mainstream Democratville were positing uh, was sharp. Um, not to say that either one is reality or like an accurate representation of what those voting blocks are, are like, but I think Trump would love to be running against Julian Castro or Beto O'Rourke on his worst day or anything, as opposed to an old well, the, guy the, the, who the, the can't find his dentures. Which a friend of mine has dubbed "budget Beto." Um, uh, <laughs> I, I think this is exactly right that uh, you know Joe Biden. Um, you know, for his strengths and his weaknesses, um, is too old to be either woke or anti-woke, right? I mean, when you know, let's go <laughs> back be, to that. He may be too old to make it through uh, two two years of, uh, well, of I don't, presiding as president if, of the if, United States. I mean, you know, that's 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 possible. I don't think that's likely, but um, uh, but 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 you know, in the end, when Democratic primary voters were faced with a choice of a lot of the people who really are woke or at least pretended to be woke because they thought that's where the electorate was uh, on the one side and with Joe Biden on the other side, they went for Joe Biden. So I think that um, that might change. I mean, different kinds of politicians may come to be in control of the Democratic Party at a different point. But when you look at where the public opinion lies, this is what makes all this sort of cancer culture mm -hmm. stuff even crazier. You know, the people yeah. at these publications, they don't speak for 40% of America. They don't speak for 30% of America. They speak for 5% of America. Um, and, uh, you know, if that 5% of America was currently in control of a Democratic Party, um, I would be somewhat worried. Um, uh, but it's not in control mm -hmm. of a Democratic Party, and I think it's important to keep that in mind. Just yeah, to, I, I would say that the party probably did a little bit more to to ensure that Joe, Joe Biden was the nominee um, by encouraging some of the folks who were lingering to get out of the race. It, it seemed that Joe was having a lot of trouble sewing up the nomination. Um, and now, now it's not like a bunny bro. His, no, I mean it's. I think it's just true. Like there was a coordinated effort on the part of the party to encourage certain folks to take a step back because their probability of securing the nomination wasn't all that high who um and they did who what do you mean who klobuchar who? um no, who was doing the coordinating i think is what matt's no, asking no, no 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 actually oh, like who who was encouraged to step back who would have normally stayed on in I your think reading the klobuchar the Buttigieg, were the folks who were still in the race towards the end there i they think had, even they had even no sh they had no shot no, i like as i as I just said, yeah, they didn't have a shot, but it wasn't clear that they weren't but willing I mean, to I mean, ride. Course. I think we may have forgotten oh, oh. because I'll just finish really quickly. I'll finish really quickly so that my, my case can be out there and then you guys can actually respond to that. But I, I think we may have forgotten that they were actually looking for a brokered convention a couple of months back. Their expectation was that this thing isn't quite clear. This guy isn't looking so good if we can just get to the convention and if it looks sufficiently bad, maybe they'll give it to me. 
Elizabeth Warren was banking on that. Other people were banking on that. And they backed off of that because at the time, there was still the belief, this was the pre-COVID world, that Joe Biden, who limps into the convention and maybe has to battle for the nomination, could splinter the party enough that it gives Donald Trump an opening. Um, and, and I think that's more the case with respect to what happened as opposed to Joe Biden really winning. He did have his ebony firewall in the South, but I, th- I think it was a little more complicated. But, but Camille, that. I mean, but the, the only reason, look, I mean, I, I, I don't doubt that at the moment when it became obvious that Joe Biden is presumptive nominee, um, you know, a lot of people with influence of the Democratic Party probably made phone calls and said, for the good of a party, step aside, you don't have a path forward. But by that point, it was obvious that Joe Biden mm-hmm. was a presumptive nominee. And it was obvious that Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg had no path towards the nomination. And that's because of the clarity with which the voters ultimately chose Joe Biden. So, you know, was the phone calls at that point? Did Barack Obama perhaps get on the phone and say, hey, you know what, Pete, you're, you're a great guy and you have a great future, but you don't have a path and probably it's best if you step aside right now? That may very well be the case. I have no knowledge of this, but that may very, very well be the case. But that worked, and those candidates um, were potentially influenced by that or, or were planning to do that same thing in any case because voters, at, by that point, had very clearly chosen Joe Biden as uh, the, the presumptive nominee. Yeah, I mean, Bill Weld was hoping for a brokered Republican convention uh, this time around, too. Mm-hmm. Everyone always hopes for the thing that literally hasn't happened in anyone's lifetime, <laughs> with the possible exception of mine. Um, but like it's it usually doesn't happen and it totally didn't happen this time. They all ran at Biden. Uh, he never didn't have a, a strong lead in this race. There was like a day and a half when, you know, Warren peaked out ahead or Sanders peaked out ahead. For the most part, like it was a wire to wire situation. So I don't think that there's like some secret backstory mm. to this stuff. Biden ran. He won. Um, and people pulled back. Uh, also because, I mean, if there's any motivating factor, um, if I'm just going to be surmising without knowledge, uh, I would surmise that uh, the motivating factor is that politicians can read the room and the room among Democrats is we have to win so much (laughs) in a sense, in a way that like, it's much more than they usually feel that thing. Like the, uh, this is why all the, the sometimes Democrat voters who, uh, might have either voted for Jill Stein or Gary Johnson or not voted at all in 2016 are going to vote for Joe Biden this year overwhelmingly is because we have to get rid of the bad guy that we don't like. Um, and I think that uh, Democratic candidates understandably uh, read the room, especially when they had absolutely no path to the nomination because of elections. Yeah, yeah. Well, we should we should probably start to wrap up pretty soon. There were a few other things that I thought might be interesting for us to talk about, but we probably don't have the time this evening. Um, there's a lot of important stuff transpiring in Hong Kong. Uh, the national security law has taken effect there, um, effectively ending what we knew as Hong Kong and ushering in something very, very different. Um, and uh, there are interesting developments there with tech companies that seem to be at least for the moment, putting the kibosh on their willingness to cooperate with the government of Hong Kong in terms of their request for information on different 
people who might be using social media in the course of their investigations. Um, we've got the surging COVID cases. Um, but the most important thing, and perhaps we can just take a nod at this uh, or nod at this on our way out the door here, is Kanye West suggesting that he may, in fact, run for president of the United States. Now, it seems that he hasn't filed any paperwork. There was simply a tweet <laughs> as well as a dump of merchandise that says Kanye 2020 vision. Um, and there was also a lengthy write-up in Forbes uh, in which Kanye West said that he no longer supports Donald Trump. He is done with Trump. And he opens up about his bid for the White House. I, I wonder how anyone couldn't support Mr. West for president of the United States. And when I say that, I'm not referring to his policies. and I'm certainly not referring to um, his call for us to reintroduce prayer in schools. Um, I'm just saying that Kanye is obviously very talented. And if it came down to it and it was Biden, Trump or Kanye, I think especially if Kanye has me working with him, helping to shape <laughs> policy, giving him good advice this is the obvious choice for America. Yasha, tell me why I'm wrong. I mean, you know, I, I don't think I'm, I'm about to vote for Kanye, but if it's West Foster, that certainly, um, you know, would make me think for five seconds longer before voting for Joe Biden. <laughs> are, you, are you actually registered in the District of Columbia, Yasha? Uh, I am in the process of getting registered in the District of Columbia. I mean, you can vote for the fucking flying spaghetti monster. It doesn't matter. It's going to be 98% Biden. Camille, that's correct. As long as I'm registered in the state, uh, in the state, in the District of Columbia, if you are on my ballot uh, paper, I, I will vote for you yeah. as Kanye's running mate. How about that? I love it. I love it. I love it. But I may not be his running mate. I don't want to be presumptuous. I'm saying that I will work <laughs> with him. I would be chief of staff. You know, something small, you know, out of the way. That, that, that's that, that's not my vote, Camille. Sorry, not good enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, we'll take that up with Kim and Kanye. Um, I don't know. Anything else, gentlemen, before we punch out of the door here? Yashi, you got any important cool stuff coming up at Persuasion that you want to plug? www.persuasion.community. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, I do have a great well, debate. I, I think we, you know, Neil, when, when we launched... Hmm. We were attacked by a lot of people on the left who said, how dare you criticize the current discourse? How dare you, you know, worry about free speech? This is all insincere and whatever. Um, and then from the right, I got a lot of attacks about saying that, you know, right-wing populism continues to be the biggest threat to our democracy. And one of the people uh, who generously treated about the project, but who also made that criticism was Neil Fergus. Um, and so one of our first events is going to be a debate between me and Neil about that subject. So that's, that should be nice. pretty fun. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that's what, that's what you want to see. I mean, this is what the persuasion thing is all about, right? Having conversations, have the debate, as opposed to shut it down. Um, well, that's great. I'll be looking out for that. Uh, okay. Well, gentlemen, I think we've done the Lord's work here today. Um, I, the Lord's I, work. I, I feel pretty good about it. Um, even though the enemy tried to disrupt this podcast by disconnecting my internet Oh, I thought you were talking about Matt. We've soldiered on. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm talking about the, the adversary who's working against yeah. us here. <laughs> <laughs> we, 
Well, we through, should also, we should also thank Yasha for having to deal with you on the phone for six hours yesterday. This is the sorrow and the pity <laughs> of the podcast. Um, and, you know, we enjoyed our Deutsche. time together. Thank you very much. Yasha <laughs> Monk. Thank you. This is so fun. Uh, fantastic. You always have to say that was so fun at the end of any you know damn podcast conversation. But with you guys, this is actually true. Oh, that's good. That's good. Cause they're usually not fun. Yeah. Don't do any other podcasts. That's this true. is the only way you should do. Yeah. So, all right. <laughs> bye, everyone. All right. Bye. Bye. We, 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 we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.